Welcome to the podcast of St. Basil the Great Catholic Church in Brecksville, Ohio, with homilies, talks, and interviews relevant to your Catholic faith. God bless you, and enjoy. Aren't religious believers anti-science? They're just fools for believing the fairy tales of the Bible. I mean, nowadays, science explains everything we need to know, right? Get out of the dark ages. We answer these questions, objections, and bumper sticker slogans next with Dr. Matt Jordan, who's been teaching philosophy since 2003 at different colleges around the nation. Special episode this time, interviewing a guest, Dr. Matt Jordan. Hello. Hello, Tommy. Thank you so much for the opportunity to, uh, to chat with you today. Yes. Yeah, so first things first, you are not our new priest. I am not. And I hope that everyone, uh, though I, I gather that Father Matt Jordan is an extraordinary and admirable human being, I think it's important to understand that that Matt Jordan is not this Matt Jordan. So we have two people named Matt Jordan. One is Dr. Matt Jordan here with us now. And then we have Father Matt Jordan, who is our new parochial vicar. And we already interviewed him in a welcome interview for our podcast it's just super confusing to have two people named Matt Jordan. It really is. And, you know, just to, to throw further <laughs> further problems, you should probably noted that I'm actually not a real doctor. Um, so, like, if you have a, a real problem. Uh, uh, yeah, like you can't save someone's yeah. life on an airplane. I Not skillfully, no. I mean, maybe by sheer dumb luck, sure. Yeah. But. But you can't save their lives, but maybe you can save their eternal soul? Well, I could at least uh, try to push them in the right direction, I hope. Okay, so what is your your doctoring? <laughs> so I have a PhD in philosophy from The Ohio State University. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And we are here today to talk about faith and science and their interaction, and are they at odds? Do they contradict one another? This is a huge issue. Why is this such a huge issue today? Well, you know, if you look at the uh, the surveys that are out there and you see the number of people who were raised with at least like a nominal Christian faith or, or particularly in the Catholic Church, um, it's something like six people leave the church for every one that comes in, which is astonishing. That's depressing. Yeah, it's terrible. And when they go out and ask people, well, you know, why are you giving up on Christianity or why are you giving up on Catholicism? There's not one uniquely... Uh, universal answer to that question. But one of the most common ones is that people felt like uh, they, they can't be intellectually honest. They can't believe in contemporary science and the things that we know now in the 21st century and be a faithful religious person. And so they, they chuck the whole thing. Um, and it's something that really resonates with me uh, on a personal level. Uh, my you know, I, I won't go through the whole story of my own uh, conversion and, and religious journey, but I really struggled with doubts uh, on a number of occasions in early adulthood. And on a few occasions, I nearly left uh, the, the church, actually I nearly left Christianity myself. I wasn't a Catholic at the time. Um, and for me, some of the science questions were among the big ones. You know, um, you, you read, for example, the book of Genesis, and you look at the evidence for biological evolution, and you say... You know, is this really, is this something that I can honestly affirm, um, given the other things that, that we seem to know about how the world is and, and so on? So, um, for me, there were some real crises of faith. And, and when I hear people uh, wrestling with the same stuff, my heart goes out to them because I know that, um, uh, there's this idea out there that you cannot be a thoughtful, reasonable, informed person and also believe what the church teaches. But those doubts, were not dangerous for you. You didn't just accept those and say, "Well, I guess, I guess I can't can't hold these two things together." You mm. did the investigating. You went after it because we're not afraid of asking those questions. And sometimes right. doubts can be. Sometimes they're they're from God. God is giving planting a seed of doubt in us so that we can search for ourselves, so that we can do the investigating, and then we'll come to believe what we always believed in a much deeper and more sincere way. Yes, I think it's absolutely right that when we take those questions seriously and we really explore them, uh, instead of just giving up at the at the first moment of conflict or, or apparent struggle, we find ourselves in a position to really 
get into these these hard questions and and hopefully come out on the other side with a deeper, richer understanding of what's really true um, and so on. One of the things that's kind of in the the air we breathe in our culture is something that I've I've called the privileging of skepticism, um, which is a little bit of a mouthful, but but all I mean is this idea out there that um, part of what it means to be smart is that you're skeptical, right? Part of uh-huh. what it means to be intelligent is that you um, you doubt things rather than believe them, and. That's that's not obviously true, is it? Right? Like, um, there's a whole story to be told about how we started thinking like that. But as one of my philosophical mentors once said, you know, sometimes you need to doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. Um, huh. And there's nothing inherently superior about a doubting mindset uh, than a, a believing one. It actually depends what kind of context you're in. Yeah, uh, you know. Uh, if you get an email, Tommy, from uh, a, a person claiming to be a um, uh, Nigerian prince uh-huh. uh, who... We speak often. Is, <laughs> you've got a relationship established. That's great. Yeah. Um, so he, I assume he's waiting for you to send your next $1,000 yeah. installment uh-huh. so that he can send you the $6 million that's, yeah. that you're due to He just inherit. needs to free that money up. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, we've all been there. <laughs> um, you know, if you get an email like that, the proper stance is one of skepticism. An intelligent person, knowing what we know, should be skeptical of those sorts of claims. But there are other areas of life, um, like, say, you're in a marriage. Um, and when your spouse says things like, I love you so much, right? The intelligent person doesn't approach that assertion with the the same kind of skepticism. Yeah, let me look at the evidence. <laughs> exactly. There's right? a full... Sink of dirty dishes. Do you really love me? <laughs> now, I didn't mean to open um, a, a particular can of worms for you, Tommy. It's a deep wound here. <laughs> um, I, I know a, a father, Matt Jordan, with whom you can speak if you'd oh, like okay. to, to explore Right that. next door. But, no, in all seriousness, right? I mean, we recognize, and those are just two kind of random examples off the top of my head, but depending on what um, situation you find yourself in, sometimes skepticism is appropriate, and sometimes credulity, right? That is, a tendency to believe rather than to doubt is appropriate. And so one of the things that I encourage people to be thinking about, you know, if they're facing this kind of crisis of faith or if they're wondering how to reconcile faith and reason, is at least to notice that we inhabit a culture where it's just taken for granted that part of what it means to be smart is to doubt. Um, And that's just not always true. Imagine you're at an airport. I'll give one more example, and then we can move on. But, um, and this is also stolen from a, a philosopher named Dallas Willard. But you know, imagine you're at an airport, and uh, you're running late, and you're trying to figure out what, what gate your flight is departing from, and you, and you frantically run up to a sign that says, you know, Delta Flight 214 is departing from gate A6. Would it be intelligent to just say, well, do I... Do I really know that this sign is telling the truth? Right? Is this really something? No, no. You you take the information you're given, and in that case, you probably literally run with it. Um, you you put your trust in it. You believe it um, because presumably you take yourself to have good reasons to do so, even if you can't articulate those reasons. So, yeah, I don't really know how planes work. Just getting on a plane, I'm trusting quite a few <laughs> well, people. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a great point too. I mean, there's a lot of trust involved in. All kinds of decisions that we make. So there's two things that we could do if we're having doubts about this science and religion or science and faith question. We can learn more and we can pray more. And both would would be good. (laughs) What we're going to do today is we're going to investigate a couple of these questions and look at them deeper because there are these presuppositions behind them and assumptions behind them that, that just don't hold water when we get to it. So, how do you want to how do you want to start off? How do you want to how do you want to approach this? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's it's your show, Tommy. All um, right. <laughs> Welcome to the Tommy Dome show. <laughs> uh, I I mean, I think that the place to begin uh, you know, my background is in philosophy, and philosophers are notorious for defining their terms and mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. emphasizing asking questions. Uh, and so maybe maybe something in that ballpark is a place to start. Like, what do we mean when we're talking about science and religion, for starters? Yeah, what is science? What is faith? And then we'll get to what is their relationship? Do they overlap at all? Are they in completely different realms? Mm. That works for me. 
Yes. <laughs> okay. So what is, what is science? What is the job of science? So I think um, that science properly understood is uh, an investigation into how the physical world works, right? Um, what are the laws of nature? Um, how do physical objects behave under certain specified conditions? Um, broadly speaking, something like that is the, the scientific uh, enterprise. Um, how? You said how a couple how, different times. Exactly. Yes. That's right. Yeah. And so one of the hallmarks of a scientific explanation of a phenomenon is that it gives us insight into the physical mechanisms that, that cause some event to occur, occur. But you can say right off the bat, <laughs> one of the potential obstacles um, to trying to use science to answer all of our questions um, is that if there are things in reality, um, and so actually, let me, let me back up here a little bit, um, because to, to set the stage, one of the things that a lot of people assume is that science is our paradigm for how you know stuff, right? Like this is, if you want to really learn something, you do science. And what, what quickly happens is we move from, from saying science is a really, really good way to learn things to saying science is the only way to learn uh -huh. things or the only source of knowledge, right? Um, and so, you know, to use one of the kind of standard examples, <laughs> uh, there's an old joke about somebody, uh, uh, a, a drunk looking for his keys on the sidewalk, and he's, he's only looking in this one space where there's a, a, a streetlight that's illuminating that part of the sidewalk. And, you know, somebody says, well, why do you keep looking for your keys in, in, in this space? And he says, well, because this is where the light is, <laughs> right? Hmm. Um, and, of course, if the keys are in a different spot, you're not going to find them only looking where the streetlight is illuminating the sidewalk. Well, likewise, if there's more to reality uh, than what science can, can discover, well, you're not going to find it using scientific methods. And that's okay. That's not a criticism of science. It's not a criticism of philosophy or religion or morality. It's just a, a statement about <laughs> how things really are. So um, what are some examples of things in reality, in our human experience, that we all encounter that science doesn't really have much to say about? So there are quite a few, in my humble opinion. Uh, I think uh, maybe the single most pressing are, well, no, I shouldn't say that, because uh, they're all really pressing, but truths of morality, right? Um, we live at a time and place in history where there's an awful lot of talk of justice going on. And uh, we don't need to get into any of the substantive issues there or, or you know, uh, try to take a side or, or figure out who's right or wrong about any specific moral question. But justice is not something that you can learn or you can investigate in a laboratory, right? You, you can't do an experiment or, or, you know, put a flame under a, a, a Bunsen, or I think I'm mixing my scientific terms, yeah, a, a Bunsen beaker? No, a Bunsen burner <laughs> under a beaker. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, the symbol of justice of the scales, <laughs> like, you, you don't... You don't put justice and injustice on either side. That's right. That would be a scientific thing. It's, that's that's more... not what you're supposed to infer for, from that image, right? Um, and certainly, to take an obvious one, for those of us who are Christians or theists more broadly, um, God is not directly accessible by the scientific method. Uh, and yet there are many of us, myself included, who would say we've had experiences, encounters with the divine. A couple big ones that uh, get some discussion in, in intellectual circles these days are consciousness and free will. And uh, there's a lot of people who assume that now that we've learned a lot about the brain, we know where consciousness comes from. And that's just not true. Um, consciousness remains a vexing problem for those who would try to give a purely physical account of what's real and so on. Um, so all of those are, are things that um, I think are clearly part of our experience. Um, well, I'll tell you, what, let's leave the distinctively religious one out because that, I think for some of my, my atheist friends, that might seem like begging the question. Um, but certainly our experience of moral awareness um, and our understanding of moral goodness, of justice, of right and wrong, that whole domain is uh, inaccessible to the scientific method. Um, consciousness and free will are at least problematic for science as we understand it or as I defined it a minute ago. Uh, and you can throw other stuff in too. You can throw in things like history, 
right? What's the scientific experiment you would do to prove that George Washington was the first president of the United States? Uh-huh. Now, that might still involve some empirical investigation, but you're not really doing laboratory science uh, at yeah. that point. So, What about love and happiness? Yeah, you know, those would, I guess I would be inclined to put them under the, the label of consciousness in the sense that those sort of um, affective states, to use a semi-technical term, those kind of feelings are part of our conscious experience uh, of, of being spiritual or, or mental uh, beings. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, C.S. Lewis has a great essay called uh, Meditation in a Tool Shed, where he points out that um, it's one thing to talk about love as um, a, a bunch of, you know, uh, chemical events taking place in your brain. And it's quite another to be in love with someone. And if you think you can give an exhaustive explanation of what love is by saying what's happening in our brains, um, then I'm guessing you're probably not married or yeah. your marriage has problems. <laughs> yeah. And you're not going to get married because the girl's going to be like, you're not speaking romantically. <laughs> yeah. So, so what we're saying is, in our human experience, there are so many different types of truth and reality, and we're not anti-science. Science right. has its job, and science is amazing at its job, yeah. but it has a certain lane that it fits in in this big uh, in this big highway. Exactly. So there's also you know mathematical truths and historical truths and. I don't know. Maybe there's musical truths about consonant works for me. Notes. I don't know. <laughs> but then there's also, yeah, religious truths and moral truths. Like there are some things that are just always, no matter what, gonna be wrong, right? Yeah. Like torturing a two-year-old for fun. Torturing an innocent child for fun is simply wrong, and there is nothing that science can can give us that helps us establish that or you know or question it. I mean, science per se is irrelevant to that that statement, and yet the statement's uh, I think clearly true. So, science and faith each have their job. What's faith? What's faith's job? What's religion's job? Uh, good question, Tommy. What's faith's job? I mean, I'll, I'll play the philosopher card and right? say, well, it depends what you mean by faith, right? Um, because there really are different kinds of things. I, th I think that this is one source of confusion for people. Um, because sometimes what we mean by faith, and, and what I think as Christians we usually should mean, is simply trusting in God. Uh, I saw somebody a couple of years ago define faith as going all in with God. And uh, I think that's pretty good. If, if you want a workable, orthodox definition of what it means to have faith, um, then usually in a, a religiously significant sense, we're talking about that kind of trust, um, that, that willingness to submit to God and, uh, and live a life um, devoted to him above all else. But sometimes when we talk about faith, we mean what you might call intellectual faith, believing something that either goes beyond the evidence that we have for it, uh, and or believing something on the basis of testimony, right? So like we might trust that the church is correct when she tells us that baptism saves us, right? Uh, that's something I would point to as an example of something I believe, but that I believe on the basis of faith understood as, as trust in the church, that uh -huh. when she speaks to that sort of an issue, She's an authority, and I can submit to that without necessarily having, you know, some sophisticated argument to prove that it that it's true or must be true or something. So then, Tommy, I guess if if the question is what's the relationship between science and faith, right? Well, if if we understand science as an investigation to how the physical world works, and we understand um, faith in the kind of senses that I was just talking about, then there's no obvious reason to think they're going to be in conflict at all. Where there's potential for conflict is when some um, religious authority, like perhaps just to choose a totally random example, the Bible, um, says something that appears to contradict what our best science seems to tell us about how the physical world works. 
then it does look like it's possible for them to come into conflict with each other. Uh, and, and I do think it's important to notice that. This is one of the controversies in this area that um, I think sometimes people miss, right? Sometimes people assume that there can be no conflict between faith and science because they see faith as something that is completely subjective. So for, for people who believe that faith is merely about emotions, you know, you have certain kinds of sublime religious feelings when you're at mass or whatever, it's not really possible for science and faith to come into conflict because faith isn't about what's really real. It's just about whether or not you're having nice experiences. Uh -huh. I think that's a very wrong-headed view um, because I think it's important to recognize that, that the church, that the scriptures can speak to factual matters about reality, uh, including physical reality. And that means that it's at least possible for, um, for them to come into conflict with each other. Then the question becomes, what do we do with those apparent conflicts and, and how do we think them through in a way that is both intellectually honest and, and faithful to our Christian convictions? So we'll find out that either we were doing our science incorrectly or we were doing our theology incorrectly. That's right. I think, you know, a lot of people probably heard the phrase um, that God is the author of the book of nature uh, and the, the book of scripture uh, or versions of that, that expression. Meaning he, he wrote both. Right. Yeah. God is behind both the natural world and the scriptures. And so if there's a contradiction between them, then we must have read one of them wrong um, because God doesn't lie. Uh -huh. Right. Uh, and I think that's the right starting point for a Christian to to look at any of these kinds of questions uh, about purported faith and science conflicts. So we are not anti-science. In fact, so many great leaps in science have come from people in the church. Catholic priests even have come from a civilization that sort of made this scientific enterprise and the scientific method that came, you know, a couple hundred years ago, it could have only come from a civilization that believed in this idea that God created the world and it has order and logic to it. Mm -hmm. That's that's right. <laughs> Say um, that better than I did. <laughs> yeah, Tommy, it's just, uh, it is an undeniable historical fact that uh, a lot of significant scientists were not just, you know, vaguely religious people, but in some cases, even ordained Catholic priests. Um, and uh, this isn't my area of expertise, but I think if, if I remember correctly, it was Lemaitre who discovered the, um, uh, I think the technical term is the, the redshift to the cosmic background radiation that demonstrates that the universe is expanding, right? This is the I, as I understand it, the central piece of evidence that led people to posit the Big Bang, which is another source of massive confusion for people, because there's a lot of people out there who think that the Big Bang is some kind of alternative uh, to God, uh, when in fact the, the Big Bang is incredibly powerful evidence for the existence of a creator. It shows that the uh, the physical universe hasn't always been here, right? It's expanding, Lemaitre showed, um, and uh, what we can infer from that is that it's <laughs> it was once smaller, and before that it was smaller, and it was smaller still, and smaller still until it was all the way back at the, the initial moment of creation. Um, As this, one author puts it, a big bang needs a big banger. <laughs> Someone who causes it. That's exactly right. things don't just happen for no reason. That's, right. That's, That's science. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, think about what it would mean for a serious scientist to look at an event and say, and we ask them, well, why do you think that happened? To say, oh, there's no reason. Um, you know, some, sometimes yeah. things like universes just, just pop into existence. It's just, there's Even, no reason. Yeah. There's no question to ask. There's nothing interesting about, but that is the sort of move people make. I remember being an undergraduate and talking to a fellow philosophy major, <laughs> starting to explore some of these kinds of questions with him. And, um, and he said something like, yeah, you know, where does the universe come from? He was an atheist. Uh, where does the universe come from? To me, that's just, that's not even an interesting question. And I was like, not an interesting question. <laughs> like, what, what are you, like, what could be more interesting than that? And I think the reason that it wasn't an interesting question to him is that it's pretty obvious that once you start exploring that question, once you start acknowledging the need for an answer to it, it's a pretty short step to theism, or at least something that looks an awful lot like theism. Yeah. 
And I've also heard that there are 34 craters on the moon named after Catholic priests because they were Jesuits and they were astronomers Mm. and they loved science because they felt that it pointed us to God. I have never heard that before. That is a great bit of trivia. Yeah. So one of the topics that comes up in this conversation, in this debate between science and faith and religion is creation. And the book of Genesis, is the earth only Mm 6,000 years old when rocks and other things tell us it's four and a half billion years old? Yeah. So I think we should cover that because that's something specific that people hear, that people wonder about when they pick up the Bible and and start to read it. So let's get into that about creation and creationism, and, and then we'll eventually get to evolution. All right. All right. Well, thank you for the warning. So, boy, it, it, you know, it's a huge topic, right? And obviously, we're trying to deal with it, it pretty succinctly here. But it, it's, again, really useful to start with those terms, uh, creationism, and people talk about intelligent design, and they talk about evolution. And different people mean different things by those words. Uh, and that's another source of um, a lot of the controversy, is that for one person, what it means to be a creationist is to believe that the universe is 6,000 years old and that the book of Genesis is a literal, scientifically precise account of how um, the earth came to be. And then other people use the word creationist to mean like anybody who believes that God was involved at any point in the process, um, which is a a pretty different sort of view. Um, One of the kind of drums that I've been banging on for a lot of years and, and, you know, nobody ever listens to me. So, um, no one's changed their mind as far as I can tell on this, but, but it's a lot like parenting. Um, <laughs> I think it's important to recognize, um, that Christians have a vast range of possibilities open to them that are compatible with the Christian faith. Whereas if you're an atheist, um, there's, there is one game in town if, if you're going to have any beliefs about the history of life on earth and the history of the universe, right? Um, if you're an atheist, there's simply no possibility that anybody has thought of that has any plausibility other than Darwinian evolution. Um, that's got to be the right story. On the other hand, if you're a Christian, there's a really broad range of, of possibilities. Um, and, and I think that Christians should be more um, confident in approaching these questions for that very reason, right? At, at one end of the spectrum, you could be, um, and a lot of people who uh, consider themselves intelligent design theorists are somewhere in, in this kind of realm, where the idea is that God created the universe and he built into it all of the potentials that it needed for, for life. And then he intervened in very minimal ways, right? Perhaps merely um, bringing a, a spirit or a soul into the first human beings, right? But, but letting nature unfold entirely according to its own internal uh, potentialities from the moment of creation up through all of natural history. Um, that's one possibility. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you would have the young earth creationist view, right? You could, and there are people, and I, I think, <laughs> I want to be careful how I put this, because it's not a view that I hold. I, I do think that when push comes to shove, the young earth creationists are, are simply wrong. Um, and, and actually, I think that a lot of them have done far more harm than good um, because they've been so dogmatic about insisting that to be a Christian, you have to hold this sort of view. But I'm also willing to say that they're not crazy the way some of their critics paint them as being. Um, they come to the uh, the science and religion debate convinced that being a faithful Christian means you read the book of Genesis in this particular way, and then they adjust or they assess then the evidence that they have, and they come up with, with different theories to explain how that could be compatible with what science seems to be telling us, right? And then there's a whole range of ideas in between, um, where you might believe that, um, that God created the first living thing, uh, and then Darwinian processes did most of the work from there on out. Or, or you might believe that God intervened at different stages, right? That's uh, what's called the uh, Cambrian explosion uh, in natural history was a point where what we see in the fossil record and in the history of life on earth, it looks like there was more rapid developments of new kinds of life than natural forces could give us. And so maybe that's a place where an intelligent designer stepped in uh, and, and acted. Um, 
so there's, there's a bunch of different possibilities there. And, and I think it's important for people to, to recognize that uh, when they're talking about this kind of issue with... Because that's part of the beauty of the Catholic Church's position. They don't come down dogmatically on right. these questions. Right. They give us so much freedom and leeway, which shows the Catholic Church knows <laughs> its lane and stays in its lane and lets yes. the experts in uh, certain other areas do their job. I, I, I totally agree. As long as that doesn't um, slide into the idea that there can be no conflict ever between what the experts say and what the church teaches. And I think in this case, the other big thing that's important to notice, and I mentioned when we got started that I had uh, had some significant crises of faith uh, years ago and that, that these issues were a part of it. So, like, look, when you read Genesis, and certainly, you know, in any contemporary English translation, it does look like it's telling us something like a, a scientific account of, of what happened. I mean, it, it, you know, there's not like a big disclaimer at the front that says, now, just so you know, the days here are not literal 24 hour time periods. And like, what we're really saying is this, you know, that there's not that kind of warning. And so one of the things that, that had bothered me was really, well, okay. So I know there are Christians who believe in evolution, but aren't they kind of fooling themselves? Aren't they sort of lying to themselves and tricking themselves and, and, and being just dishonest? And so that's the other piece of the puzzle that I think is important for people to understand is that when you examine the Bible on its own terms, and in particular, in particular, when you examine those first few chapters of Genesis and you read them as literature and you let them speak for themselves as these ancient creation texts and you don't impose our categories from the 21st century English speaking world onto them, what you find, um, and, and this probably isn't the context to dig too deeply into this, but what you find are a number of hallmarks that suggest that this wasn't intended to be read literally, right? This was not something that a, a Hebrew living six centuries before Christ would have read and thought was necessarily um, a, a straightforwardly literal account, that it was in the realm of, of what I think, I don't like to use this word because it confuses folks, but I think it's, it's right to say it's in the, the realm of creation myth, right? And I don't like the word myth because it sounds like I'm saying it's false. No, 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 <laughs> not false. Um, deeply true, richly true, um, but not presented in the same style or according to the same um, uh, rules of literature that a scientific account would be presented, but something more like poetry. So that when, you know, when we read in the Psalms about uh, God gathering us beneath his wings as a, as a hen gathers her chicks, right? Well, we're not saying that God has feathers, right? Mm -hmm. Or when the psalmist says that... But there's uh, something very true in it. Exactly. There's something true, right? Or when the psalmist says that he sets the earth on its foundations, it cannot be moved. Well, that's compatible with believing that the earth is actually orbiting the sun, right? Because the point of the psalm is not to say something about geocentrism or heliocentrism in the solar system. It's to say something about God as our creator <laughs> uh, and God's power over everything, God's ultimate control, and so on. And I think you get the same kinds of things in the Hebrew scriptures, particularly, well, not throughout necessarily, because there's different kinds of literature. But looking at the creation stories in Genesis, I think an intellectually honest person can look at that and say, oh, well, sure, it appears to contradict Genesis, but only if you read it in this, you know, characteristically modern Western sort of way that the text itself does not require of us. And in fact, even pushes us away from in a number of respects. Uh, St. Augustine actually rather famously uh, did not read Genesis literally either. He, yeah, he went the other direction. bring that up. And he was around in the 400s. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so he certainly wasn't worried about Darwin, right? He wasn't worried about proving to his um, contemporaries that you could make Genesis fit with evolution. Uh, he had other uh, qualms about it, and, and he went the opposite direction. He said that seven days was too long um, and that, uh, that God could have created everything just all at once. Um, but, you know, <laughs> that particular detail isn't as important as the fact that, that Augustine um, – read the same text that we're looking at and came to the conclusion that this is not presented as a scientifically precise account, even though he was asking totally different questions 
from those that, that animate us today. Yeah, we don't need to look at Genesis as a science textbook or a geology textbook, but there are things true in there. And it's just like in all our human speech, we say things in certain ways, like if you told me that you, uh, gee, I don't know, um, like won a, a parish raffle or something, I'd be like, what? Get out of town. But I'm not telling you to leave town. <laughs> I'd more likely be like, stay stay here and buy lunch uh, for me. Or um, remember those, did you ever sell cheese and sausage as a kid? I don't remember selling cheese and sausage. We had magazine drives. Okay, we had a fun, okay, so yeah, you sell magazines like as a school fundraiser. And if little, you know, 11-year-old Matt Jordan came home and said to mom, like, I just sold tons of magazines. It's like you didn't sell tons of magazines. You know, that's like 2,000-some pounds or whatever. <laughs> but the truth in it is that you sold a, ton, sold a lot of magazines. Right. That's right. <laughs> and the truth in these Genesis stories are about the relationship between God and human beings mm-hmm. and the relationship between men and women and the relationship between God and the physical universe. Mm-hmm. So there are many true things in it. And it's authored in a way that speaks to that author's context, right? So you have, again, without getting too far into the weeds, you have this ancient religious environment where the Hebrews who believe in one God are living in this polytheistic world, right? Where there's a lot of people believing in a, a you know, that the sun is a God or, and the moon is a God and that, you know, the sea is, or, or there's a God of these things. Right. Um, and this Genesis narrative comes in and just completely blows that up because that's the big challenge, right? Uh, it's this polytheism that has to be addressed. And so you have this narrative that's saying, no, there is one God. He made the sun. He made the moon. He made the stars. He made it all right. Um, but, Again, we could we could talk for a long time on on the Genesis story itself, but I think the really important point is is the one you were just making. It really is true, but to say that it's true isn't necessarily to say that it's a scientifically precise account. And it only makes sense to read the library of the Bible, right? Because the Bible is not a book; right. it's a collection of seventy three books. And there's biography, and there's poetry. Mm-hmm. And there's theology, and then there's just books of advice, letters given to communities, giving them advice. So there's all kinds of things, and there's history. So it'd be just like if you go into a library today, you don't go to the periodicals or the nonfiction section uh, looking for poetry. Like, you know, <laughs> you know what area of the library you're in, and you read things in that area with a certain mindset. Exactly. And you wouldn't read a grocery list like it was a love poem, mm-hmm. right? And that's also why, I mean, one of the things that people worry about when somebody says the kind of stuff that we've been saying, like, well, look, you read Genesis differently. They say, well, then what are you going to do with the Gospels, right? Like, are you going to say that, well, it's just metaphorical that Jesus rose from the dead? And well, no, the, the Gospels are a different kind of literature from those creation accounts, Right. And as long as there's good reasons to say that, and there are, right, there, there are principled reasons for approaching these texts differently that have nothing intrinsically to do um, with controversies over science and religion. As long as there's good reasons to look at them differently, that's a that's an intellectually honest and healthy way to, to approach them, maybe even a necessary way to approach them. So, again, we are free and the Catholic Church gives us freedom And you are free to believe in evolution. A lot of our popes have believed in evolution as long as, because there's certain parameters, as long as you still believe that there is a God who created the world and that humans are a special creation from God and that we receive our souls directly from God. Those don't evolve out of minerals or something, (laughs) but bodies can evolve. So there's a total way to harmonize these things and our Catholic popes have done it and theologians today. And I think most of our Catholics too in the pews uh, can harmonize these things just fine. When we remember science has its job, faith has its job and faith can trust science as long as science is not trying to tell us how to live. 
or how to make decisions, or if there's an afterlife. Right. As long as science isn't put forth as the exhaustive window on reality, like the drunk looking for those keys under the streetlight, right? Science is really good at finding the things it's designed to find, um, but yeah. it's not necessarily designed to find everything. And science changes too. Yeah, that's right. That's part I, that's built into the science method is mm -hmm. you have a theory that best explains the available evidence, but there's always some anomalies or outliers in the evidence. And one day someone might say, hey, I have a slightly different uh, theorem that will explain this evidence and it will include the anomalies and the outliers. And we say, okay, yeah, we're going to modify. <laughs> and in principle, that's anyway, part of it. Right. I mean, part of what's interesting, and this is, you know, um, maybe a topic for another time, but uh, that's it's not always quite as simple as that, right? Um, you, you might have your um, father, Lemaitre, who identifies the evidence for the Big Bang, and there might be a lot of pushback because there might be a lot of people who, for reasons that are scientific or for reasons that are totally personal and have to do with their reputation yeah. or that are sociological who say, no, that can't be right. No, no, no. We, we know that the universe is in a steady state. It doesn't expand. And that's contract. exactly what happened in that mm -hmm. example. Yeah. <clears throat> he did get a lot of pushback. All right. So how we read the Bible is important. Um, faith and science each have their jobs, and they each point to our bigger one reality that we all experience. Uh, let's see, another analogy that came to mind that I've shared before on a different series on this podcast I heard once was if you're at the beach, right? And your kid has this like favorite plastic action figure toy mm -hmm. and he loves it. And it's been his favorite for years. And he brings it to the beach because he has to bring it to the beach because it's his favorite. Yeah, I got a bad feeling about where this is going. And he uh, is like, oh, he's going to, I'm going to bury him in the sand. And it's, it's like a terrible idea. <laughs> so your son comes running to you. You're trying to read or just catch some rays. And your son comes running up to you and says, I lost my, I lost my favorite guy. My favorite action figure, you know, no, the no, plastic no, one. No. You would not take a metal detector <laughs> and look for the plastic toy yes. because a metal detector can't detect plastic. A metal detector, just like it says, detects metal. So it's really good at its job, but it can't do everything. All right. So we are actually doing a series of three of these podcasts. This first one with Dr. Matt Jordan here is about the big question of does science contradict faith? And our next episode is going to zero in on a couple of the best arguments for God's existence that we can use and that we can draw some confidence from. And the third one, we're going to talk about the problem of evil. How could a good and loving God allow evil and suffering in the world? What are some good answers to that and ways to think about that? Because we do have a loving God. And we do have evil in the world. So how do we make sense of it? And to just say it's a mystery is not enough. Is there a mysterious element? Absolutely. However, we will cover that in its own podcast in our third of this series with the philosopher here, Dr. Matt. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to end with some recommendations of further reading. But before we do that, we, we got to mention Galileo. Oh, and this yes. Galileo. Galileo affair. And what does that mean? Isn't that proof yes. that the church is anti-science? It seems to be the objection everybody pulls up, even though it's 500 years old. Yes, Galileo is a patron saint for all of the um, smart people who left the church because... Uh, science. Right. <laughs> when, in fact, when you learn, when you take yeah. the time to learn... It's not that hard to find the out the true actual story. story? Like this has been, you know, like, suppressed. It's like... Okay, like, look. Here, yeah. here's Please watch a video or read a book, <laughs> but here's, here's, the, here's the summary yeah. real quick. I, Give it I, to us. I have the summary. Here's how it goes. Roughly, pretty much everybody these days thinks of Galileo as a free-thinking scientist who demonstrated that the Earth revolves around the sun, you know, rather than the uh, sun going around the Earth like everybody thought, um, that he courageously stood up to an authoritarian Catholic church that was threatened by his ideas, uh, and he was eventually imprisoned and censured by the church for his commitment to science. Uh, all praise be to Galileo. But the, the reality, Tommy and everybody, the reality 
is just a lot more complicated than that. For one thing, by the time that Galileo was writing, people were already talking about uh, what's called heliocentrism, right? The idea that the sun is the center of the solar system, the idea that the earth goes around the sun. Um, People were already talking about that. Copernicus uh, had already made that case, and his writings were in circulation. They were being widely discussed by intellectuals inside and outside the church. And nobody was trying to ban the publication or distribution of those ideas. Um, Galileo himself, here's here's the thing that most people are not aware of that explains a lot of what happened. Galileo himself was was not merely a scientist, um, but he actually wrote quite a bit about theology and biblical interpretation. And he happened to do so right at the time that the church was responding to the crisis of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. And so one of the effects of all the Reformation stuff was that the church was becoming much more emphatic in rejecting um, so-called private interpretations of Scripture. And so Galileo comes along, and he's got this like super contra- con- uh, excuse me super confrontational style, um, and he's writing on what the Bible really means, <laughs> and that's what got him in trouble with the ecclesial authorities. Um, if you're talking about purely the scientific stuff from at that time and place in history, the, the scientific data that was available, uh, it was just inconclusive between the heliocentric view that Copernicus and Galileo were defending uh, and, and the geocentric model that put the earth in the middle. So um, Galileo's conclusions were right, but the evidence right. he had to support them weren't it, correct. It wasn't. He it, didn't have the premises all there. Like he thought that some of the, uh, like the tides were coming in and out were from the earth moving around. And so the water on the earth was sloshing around because the earth was there, moving around. This the is sun. even worse for Galileo all of a sudden. But <clears throat> yeah. yeah, he got his conclusions right. He did get in trouble with the church, but his arguments were. <laughs> Not great, um, and they certainly weren't conclusive relative to the other kind. Like like Tycho Brahe is the other name that comes up in these conversations, and he was somebody who was defending a geocentric model. And again, if you look at the information that was available at that time, um, they were they were offering competing scientific theories that were both good science given what they were in a position to assess from their perspective. Um, it was because Galileo was writing about the Bible and religion and was doing it in the wake of the Protestant Reformation. That's why he got in trouble with the church. And, and the just church for the record, said, just for the record, he was not put in prison. He was placed under house arrest. He was not tortured. He wasn't put in a dungeon. He wasn't burned at the stake. <laughs> he wasn't executed. He was. He was put on house arrest. He was even given a butler. He was even still given a salary. And his greatest work of science was written during this time. So it's not like he wasn't available to, uh, he wasn't allowed to continue his um, experiments. Uh, he did not invent the telescope, but he did improve it, and he couldn't sell them. He couldn't sell telescopes to Catholic priests fast enough <laughs> because these Jesuits wanted to buy them because they were astronomers too. And uh, so I, You came prepared on Galileo. I'm so glad you brought up Galileo. Uh, <laughs> well, that was yeah, His daughter was a nun uh, when he first wanted to start teaching at university before he, got, uh, before he got a job. He went to a priest friend, a Jesuit, and said, would you write a letter of recommendation? Because at the time, he was just a private tutor. And this Jesuit said, yeah, of course. You know, like, you're a smart guy, and we'd love to have you. And that's how he got his first job, first job teaching. So we would love for you to continue to read up on Galileo, because it is not uh, an example of the church being anti-science. No, it's... Uh and, yeah. <laughs> and Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, uh, you know, a Catholic saint, he he was on the scene at the time, and he said, "Listen, I I think you're wrong, Galileo, but um, if you can demonstrate uh, that your uh, experiments and observations show that the Earth revolves around the Sun, like we'll we'll take a look at how we're interpreting yeah. the Bible." But he couldn't. He couldn't do that at the time because he, he they didn't just didn't have the right. the stuff available. And they said you can teach this as a theory, but he wouldn't teach it as a theory. Mm-hmm. He taught it as a fact, and that was where that was where things came to conflict. And again, I think the broader context is crucial, right? Oh boy. Okay, so uh, almost called your father Matt. So Doctor <laughs> Matt, 
One book I read, and then I'll ask for your book recommendations, that I read is simply called The Catholic Church and Science, and it's only 150 pages. It's uh, it's by Benjamin Weicker, and I really loved it. It talks about aliens. It talks about Galileo. It talks about Genesis and evolution and the Big Bang, and I really, I really liked. It. I found it fun, especially the extraterrestrial life chapter was was really fun. Great recommendation. You know, I did not know that Benjamin Weicker was a Catholic, um, and it's funny because you know you asked me if I had anything I would recommend, and uh, I also am recommending a Benjamin Weicker book. Um, though just now learned that he's a Catholic. Um, a, a book that I read years ago, he co-authored with Jonathan Witt, uh, and that book is called A Meaningful World, How the Arts and Sciences Reveal the Genius of Nature. Uh, if you're only going to read one thing on intelligent design and reasons to believe that's, um, that there's an intelligence behind the physical world, that's the book I would point you to. It's wonderfully well-written, very, very accessible and interesting, and I, I found it utterly fascinating um the the short version of the the summary is the authors show they start with shakespeare and they say look here's why shakespeare is a genius here's the kinds of features you find in his writing that make him not just you know interesting but genius and then they go on to show how the same kinds of things the same kinds of principles um can be seen in the physical world and the way it's organized huh. it's an amazing book highly recommended cool um i might also point people to a francis collins book the language of god um collins says some things that i would disagree with especially when he comments toward the end of the book on some bioethical issues uh, but broadly speaking uh it's a really nice presentation of some other intelligent design kinds of arguments uh, collins was an adult atheist um, when he converted to evangelical Christianity, largely because of these kinds of reasons. And as a world-class scientist, uh, people well, might see the guy his in name charge of like the Human Genome Project as the director of the Human Genome Project. So he is no slouch. Uh, and then there's lots of other good stuff out there. Um, I, I would recommend uh, Collins's organization, BioLogos. Uh, that's B-I-O-L-O-G-O-S. Uh, their website has all kinds of stuff on science and religion. Uh, and, of course, people who are listening to this podcast probably know Bishop Barron and Word on Fire. Um, if you go to Word on Fire's websites, uh, they have a whole section on science and religion. It's full of good stuff. So. Uh, one last recommendation. I haven't read it, but I've heard it recommended several times, and I've heard interviews with the author on Catholic Radio, and that's Dr. Stacy Tresankos. And she has a book called Particles of Faith, I believe. So I'll link to all these books in the show notes in the description on our podcast website. But till next time, when we talk about arguments for God's existence, and the next next time, when we talk about how could a good God allow evil in the world. Thank you so much, Dr. Matt Jordan. Thank you so much, Mr. Tommy Dome. I appreciate it. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this audio from our parish. You can find other homilies, talks, and interviews at our website, basilthegreat.org or by subscribing to this podcast in your favorite app. Just search for St. Basil Catholic Church Brexville. St. Basil the Great, pray for us.